Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Today we have a very exciting advert for a podcast that I love. I have been listening to Fresh Hell for a couple of years. We did a cross promo with them a couple of years ago. They are amazing. It's hosted by Annie and Joanna. And the detail of some of their cases is just incredible. I am going to leave a link to it in the show notes and I'll pop a trailer on the episode now so you can get a little taster of what the episodes are like. Enjoy. I'm Annie from Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm Johanna from Vienna, Austria. We are the hosts of Fresh Hell, your international podcast that covers murder, mystery and the macabre throughout history. Are you interested in the 3,569 ways your household could have killed you in the Victorian era? Do you know how malaria and syphilis played a role in the John List family murders? And have you ever wondered what Prince Albert's sex chair had to do with the murder of Stanford White? Okay, nothing. It had nothing to do with it. We're still telling you about it, though. It's a pretty great sex chair. If you're looking for another show that talks about Ted Bundy, this is probably not the podcast for you. But if you're looking for two women that cover lesser-known cases from all over the world with a lot of background information. So much background information that you will rock your local pub quiz from now on. Then find Fresh Hell Podcast on your favorite podcast app. We also have German cannibals. See you soon. Tschüss. The suspicion on this woman came first when her husband died and later when her sister died. But what no one would know until many, many years later was that two of her daughters had also died and the doting mother had never told anyone. The question was, what was she trying to hide? This is Red Rum, stories about the true victims of crime. At 4.30am on Tuesday the 17th of July 1984, a person taking a walk out in Squaw Valley called emergency services to report a fire by the side of the stream. Emergency services arrived and once they put the fire out, they discovered the charred remains of a human body. Whoever it was had suffered burns over 90% of their body. Forensic experts determined that gasoline had been used to start the fire and so this had been intentional. The human body had no identification on it, but it was clear that the remains were female. Someone in their late teens, probably around 17 years of age, and the young woman had duct tape across her mouth. The medical examiner identified that, although it was clear the teenager had been shot, that wasn't her cause of death and might have been an old wound. Based on their findings, a composite sketch was drawn and the unidentified teenager was given the identifier of Jane Doe 485884. 
It wasn't until nine years later when the authorities would receive a phone call helping them to connect the dots together and figure out exactly what happened to Jane Doe 485884. To get there, we've got to go a little while back, all the way back to 1946, where we meet Teresa Cross. She was born in 1946 in Sacramento in California. Her dad, Jim, was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, which meant he could no longer work. And because of this, he had to quit his job, and he started living back at the home full-time, with Teresa being the main carer. Her mum, Swanee, who she was incredibly close to, did help care for Jim, along with Teresa's sister, Rosemary. Swanee passed away in 1961 when Teresa was just 15 years old. She had a heart attack, and her death was sudden and shocking. This caused Teresa to become extremely depressed, and she felt as though she had no one in the world to support or look after her. It was around this time that Jim, her dad, became continuously abusive towards his children, including Teresa and her two sisters. That abuse would continue on, and by the time Teresa was 16 years old, she'd had enough. She decided to leave the family home. By this point, they'd been forced out of the home she grew up in because her dad wasn't able to work and her mum wasn't around anymore. So they'd sold up, downsized, and were now in a rented place. At 16, Teresa dropped out of school. She'd met a 21-year-old man called Clifford, or Cliff, who she married soon after. The relationship was rocky from the start, and after the wedding vows, seemed to get worse. Teresa was physically violent towards Cliff, and Cliff was violent towards Teresa too. But by the time Teresa turned 17, she discovered she was pregnant with her and Cliff's first child. She gave birth to a baby boy who they called Howard. Her sole focus became on looking after the house and raising her son, and she got pregnant with her second child. But less than a year after the birth of Howard, the couple had started arguing because Cliff had been partying with his friends for his birthday, and Teresa had wanted him to be at home. Cliff decided he'd had enough of the constant arguments and the controlling nature of Teresa. He wanted freedom, and he wanted out. He threatened to leave before, just two weeks earlier, the couple had ended up having a violent argument where Cliff had struck Teresa and said he was leaving. Teresa had called the police, who came to the house and took a statement. And during that statement, they asked Teresa if she wanted to press charges, but by this point, she'd decided against it because Cliff had agreed he was going to move out. And this wasn't an abnormal thing for the pair to do. One week, Cliff would threaten to leave, and sometimes he would, for a few days, a week even. And other times, Teresa would be the one who threatened to leave. But they always came back together. Since they had Howard, however, Teresa thought things would be different, but they weren't. Cliff told Teresa he was leaving, and he said this time he meant it. She knew he was being serious, and so in a fit of rage and hurt, she waited for Cliff to turn away from her and walk towards the front door. As he did so, she reached down to pick up the loaded gun next to the table. She aimed it at Cliff, who was now back facing towards her with his hand out in front of him as if trying to protect himself, and she fired a single shot. Immediately after that, she went down to a house down the street, where she knew the sheriff lived. She knocked on, and when he answered, she confessed to having shot her husband. Although in a twist of a lie, she told him that she and Cliff had been arguing, and that he'd been the one to pick up the gun and used it to strike her. 
She said he wasn't stopping and just kept hitting her over and over and so in self-defense, she'd managed to somehow wrestle the gun off of him and then shot him in the arm. With that, the sheriff thought that perhaps Cliff had a flesh wound, he'd probably be okay. But when he arrived back at the house with Teresa, he could see straight away that the shot had been in the torso area, not solely the arm. It had gone straight through his hand and into his heart and it had been fatal. Teresa was arrested right there and then, and when police questioned her, she told them a different story about what had happened with Cliff. She said that she'd lied about the physical altercation between herself and Cliff. He'd apparently threatened to hit her, and so she grabbed the gun. Then, she said, she blacked out, and the next thing she knew, Cliff was on the floor having been shot. She only ever meant to scare Cliff, not hurt him, and certainly not kill him. The officers questioning Teresa did not believe her though, and so the case went to trial. At trial, Cliff's sister was called to testify, and she told the court that Teresa had done this before. She'd actually tried to shoot Cliff months before the killing. Thankfully, she missed, but all the same, she'd tried. Teresa, by this point, still pregnant with Cliff's child, pleaded at trial. She really had been an abused wife who was just defending herself, and now she had to have his child and raise it on her own. Her defence very much used a domestic violence defence and the fact that she was pregnant, and it worked. She was held not responsible for her actions and was found not guilty of murder. After the verdict was announced, Donald Dorfman from the DA's office in Sacramento said that the jurors ran over to Teresa, some in tears, and they hugged her, saying how glad they were that she was found not guilty, and so Teresa was released. The very next day, she headed straight to the DA's office where she demanded to have her gun back. Then, in March of 1965, Teresa gave birth to the child that she'd been pregnant with at her trial. She called the little girl Sheila. Once she'd had baby Sheila, she moved in with a new man she was dating in Rio Linda, California. So it was this new man, Teresa, Sheila and her first child, Howard. But it soon became clear to the man that Teresa was using this as a means of free childcare. She would often go out drinking and leave him with the two young children. After the man caught Teresa cheating on him, he ended things with her and she was forced to look after the children herself. But, in true Teresa fashion, as we'll go on to talk about more, she didn't want to put her children first, and so she started looking for a new partner that would take them off of her hands so that she could spend her days out and about, oftentimes drinking, and looking for a new partner. That's when she met a man called Robert Knorr, who she started a relationship, and right from the start, the pair would fuel each other's abusive tendencies. They argued a lot. They would fight, and they both had pretty extreme drinking problems. In the midst of this mess, the pair ended up getting married, and then Teresa got pregnant with her now third child. This time, she gave birth to another daughter, who she and Robert named Susan, and she went on to have three more children with Robert. The first, a boy called Billy Bob, and then another boy called Robert Jr., and finally, another daughter, Terry. Teresa seemed to have something against Susan from the minute she was born. She didn't connect with her in the same way she connected with her other children, and that's not to say she had a brilliant relationship with the other five children, but for some reason, she would target Susan specifically, often calling her a devil worshipper, and that she deserved whatever bad things came her way. 
Life was not by any means easy for the family. They were living on a small income and the family of now eight was split between just two bedrooms. And with both parents being abusive towards the children, they all struggled to form genuine bonds with each other and certainly with their parents. It wasn't long before the dysfunction proved too much for Robert and he divorced Teresa. Of course, in this kind of situation, the only people who can leave are the parents. The children don't get a choice, they just have to stay. Teresa went on to marry a further two times and things started spiralling even more out of control, including Teresa's drinking. With this and the feeling of losing control, she soon learned that her eldest son Howard, who'd been in the room with his dad Cliff when Teresa had shot and killed him, had been exhibiting some extremely worrying and horrific behaviour. Howard had been abusing the youngest daughter Terry and the youngest son Robert and as a result of that, when Teresa found out, she decided to abuse him. But the abuse she inflicted on Howard likely wasn't to do with the care she had for her two children who had suffered at his hands. Abuse never is, but instead it was to do with the control she felt she had lost. Meanwhile, the children were managing to attend school and attempt some kind of normalcy in their day-to-day lives, all while the abuse at home was only getting worse. One day, Terry had gone to school and she told her friends that they didn't really have new clothes or enough of any kind of clothing at all at home. This friend then went on to tell her mum, And then one day, the mum turned up at Teresa's house and said that she had some clothes for Terry. Her daughter had grown out of them and she wanted them to go to someone who could use them. Teresa thanked the woman for the clothes and said goodbye. But as soon as the woman was out of the house, she shouted at her daughter to come to her. And when Terry got to where her mum was at, Teresa grabbed her by the hair and dragged her through the downstairs room of the house. She screamed at her that they were not a charity case and she better not tell anyone their business ever again. She then tied Terry up to one of the inside doors and made her two younger sons hold her in place while she proceeded to hit her a number of times with a stick. Teresa would continue to use her sons to help her carry out the continuous abuse over the following year and they didn't escape it. They were very much prone to violent outbursts from Teresa, but if they helped her, she'd be more likely to focus on one of the three girls, Sheila, Susan or Terry, and leave the boys alone. Howard took charge of looking after the children, in some respects, but only because he was forced to. No one else was going to do it, and if his mum or stepdad were out or on a drinking binge, then he'd have to make sure the other children got fed and washed and went to sleep at night. Teresa was extremely depressed and angry during this time and she'd take out her fury on the children. She even got a large piece of wood and wrote on it in big letters, Board of Education, and she'd used that to beat her children. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Today, I wanted to talk to you about something that I think is really, really important. My family and friends know I am the biggest advocate for therapy. When I was in my early to mid-twenties, I really struggled to open up and be honest about how I was feeling and it led to me just thinking I had to deal with it all on my own and that just isn't practical or useful. Thankfully, I had an amazing group of people who stuck by me through that time, but I really noticed a huge shift in the quality of my life after I started going to therapy. I now feel so much better equipped on how to deal with everyday stressors or even big life events that back in my early twenties I really would have struggled with. BetterHelp is entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. 
Visit betterhelp.com slash redrum today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash redrum. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Slowly, her focus shifted away from abusing Howard, and she made him join her in abusing the three daughters. Teresa was constantly angry with Sheila, Susan, and Terry and was convinced they were all sexually active, despite the fact she'd never had anyone say this or any evidence of this, and the girls sure weren't going to open up and talk to her about their private lives. Sheila, the eldest of the three, was just 13 years old at this point, and she lived in constant fear of doing anything wrong and being punished for it. By all accounts, she was timid, shy, and extremely, quote, well-behaved. Teresa's obsession with her daughters being sexually active was centred around them not having an education, but this made no sense. Because she'd made all of her daughters drop out of school before they reached 14, it was actually Teresa's choice. Of course, having dropped out of school, the children no longer had any kind of social stimulation or general education. They were inside the home most of the time and that meant they were even more prone to receiving beatings from their mum. By this point, Howard was still living at the house, but he was also exploring his own life outside of it. He got to know the outside world and quickly came to realise how the abuse in the home wasn't by any means normal or a regular thing to happen. He told his mum that she wasn't going to abuse the children anymore. Howard was a big lad by this point and Teresa had no choice but to stop. Although, she only really stopped when Howard was around. As soon as he left the house to go to work or to see his friends, then she'd be even more abusive towards the remaining children. Even when the abuse wasn't physical, in terms of beatings, Teresa would make sure to abuse them in other ways. She would constantly make the three girls overeat because she was worried that if they appeared to be attractive to boys, then they'd be more likely to be sexually active. Teresa had married a third husband, divorced, and then married a fourth husband, Chet Harris. After their inevitable divorce, Teresa told the other children she was more convinced than ever that Chet had turned Susan into a witch. One time she pulled one of Susan's teeth out, and this was so horrific that it led to Susan managing to run away. She escaped. When the police picked her up, they saw the amount of injuries on her and took her straight to the hospital. Susan was completely honest and complained to doctors that she'd been suffering regular beatings by her mum for years. She begged to be taken out of the family home and put into care, but that didn't happen. She did spend a little bit of time in a psychiatric hospital, but it wasn't long at all before the authorities spoke to Teresa about what Susan had said and they asked if it was true. Teresa obviously denied it, saying instead that Susan was and always had suffered with mental health issues and they made her say ridiculous things like that. How she excused the very obvious injuries that the officers had been alarmed by in the first place, there's no information on. But either way, she managed to worm her way out of it and Susan was placed back into her care and they returned home. 
Teresa then forced Susan to corroborate her story, saying to Child Protection Services that her mum wasn't abusive at all. What they didn't know at the time, but would find out many years later, was that Susan had suffered a beating so bad that she'd actually developed an ovarian tumour. At this point, Teresa was furious with her daughter. When they got back home, she told Susan there were going to be some changes. She needed to be punished for running away and for what she'd told the police and the doctors. Teresa started starving Susan of both food and water. The average human can go just three days without water and Teresa would very often get to the edge of that time frame, giving Susan water just when she most desperately needed it to survive. The physical abuse continued and Teresa started to try and turn her other children against Susan. She'd encourage them to help her abuse Susan, saying that she'd committed sins and needed to be punished. Teresa would come up with ridiculous stories, accusing her children of all sorts of things, none of which were true. She'd accused Susan of being a witch. At one point, she accused Sheila of being pregnant and having an STI, both of which were proven by doctors to be untrue. But Teresa wasn't doing all of this to be right. She was doing it just because she wanted to. And then one day, who knows why, Teresa had had enough of Susan and pulled a gun out on her. She made her stand at the other end of the room and then she shot her in the chest. Susan was hurt, but she didn't die straight away. In fact, she was still alive a few hours later. And so Teresa made the other children carry her to the bath and put her in it. Over the next four weeks, Teresa decided she would nurse Susan back to health, and although it was an odd choice, to help out her daughter after shooting her, it became clear years later that she did this as another form of control. While Susan was recovering, Teresa said they'd need to come up with a cover story so no one would suspect her. She told all of the children that the story was going to be that the eldest daughter, Sheila, had accidentally stabbed Susan in the chest, but she was on the mend now. Both Terry and Sheila continued looking after Susan and they managed to nurse her back to health to the point where she was actually able to get up and leave the bath that she'd been confined to for the last four weeks. Throughout all of this, Teresa really isn't able to hold down a steady job and she's also now a single parent providing for all of her children. I use the word providing loosely. And so she had to ask her sister Rosemary if they could all move in with her. Rosemary agreed, and the family moved in soon after. But before long, another murder had happened to one of the closest people to Teresa. Her sister Rosemary was found at the side of the road nearby, having been strangled to death. To this day, her case remains officially unsolved, but there are no suspects other than, of course, Teresa. Although with a lack of evidence linking her to the crime, Teresa has never been charged with anything relating to Teresa's murder. And now, she was free to do whatever she wanted to the children in Rosemary's house. She told the children that Susan was a witch and handcuffed her to the bed. She also made her take drugs that would sedate her to make her drowsy so she'd be less effort to handle. All the while, Teresa would tell them that Susan was suffering because of her own actions and that's why these things were happening to her. Susan knew she was on the edge of death. She'd been for some time, and in fact, all of her siblings knew this too. She needed to do whatever she could to escape this hell, and the very last thing she could think of to leave was with her mum's consent. It was a long shot, but if she didn't ask her mum, she knew she'd be trapped here forever. 
She told Teresa, because she was almost 18 years old, she would really like to leave, and she asked if her mum would buy her a one-way ticket to Alaska. She would leave and never return. She'd be out of Teresa's life forever, surely something she wanted given that she tried to kill Susan more than once. And surprisingly, Teresa agreed. She had just one condition. Teresa told Susan that she wasn't convinced she wouldn't just go straight to the police. They hadn't believed her before, but now there was a bullet lodged in her back, and although she had somewhat healed, she was still incredibly weak, and the bullet itself was enough evidence to prove that she had been shot. As soon as she told anyone it was her own mum, Teresa would surely be arrested. Teresa said that she would let Susan go, she'd even buy her that one-way ticket, providing she let her mum remove the bullet so there was no evidence leading back to her. Susan obviously didn't have much of a choice and so agreed. Teresa bought out some old tools, a makeshift hospital of different kinds of knives and anything else she could find that might be able to remove the bullet. She gave Susan some Thiora design, a medication used to treat schizophrenia, and some alcohol to wash it down with. This particular medication has side effects that include making you drowsy and dizzy if mixed with alcohol, likely something Teresa was counting on given what happened just a few days later. And it can also make you prone to infection. It took a little over two hours for Teresa to find the bullet and despite the horrific nature of the surgery, Susan did manage to get through it and the bullet was removed. But Susan became extremely unwell over the next day or two. The bullet wound that Teresa had, quote, operated on had become badly infected and Susan was getting more poorly by the day. By this point, Teresa was beginning to get annoyed by the inconvenience of having a very sick child. Susan was lying in the middle of the room, by now unable to move because of the sepsis she'd developed. And whenever the siblings or Teresa passed her, they'd have to literally step over her. Teresa decided to take her two younger sons and Susan to the car. They loaded her inside and drove a few miles away to a stream that was a little way off the beaten track. Once they arrived, Teresa made her sons help her take Susan out of the car and put her on the ground next to the stream. She told Billy Bob and Robert that because Susan was possessed by the devil, the only way to purge the demon was with fire. She then doused Susan's body in gasoline and then she made one of her sons flick a lighter on and throw it onto Susan. Then, at 4.30am the next morning, a passerby came across the blazing fire and emergency services eventually recovered Susan's body. Obviously, they didn't know it was Susan and they weren't able to identify her. A composite sketch was drawn, but no one came forward, and so the body was identified only as Jane Doe 485884. The medical examiner determined that Susan had been alive when her body was set on fire. Meanwhile, back at the House of Horrors, Teresa turned her attention to Sheila. She started forcing her to go out and do sex work, and she made her give all of the money she earned to her. Teresa was still accusing Sheila of things that were completely untrue. At this point, she tried to make Sheila admit to having been pregnant by one of her sex work clients, and that she had an STI. Both of these things were proven to be untrue by a doctor, but it didn't matter. Teresa was going to do what she wanted to do, and the fact that Sheila didn't have an STI didn't matter to her. She made Sheila sit in an ice bath, she chained her up, and alongside this, she was still making her own daughter work the streets doing sex work. 
After all of that, she went on to tie Sheila up and lock her in a tiny, boiling hot cupboard that was full of shelves. She wasn't even able to sit down or kneel. She had to hold herself up the whole time and she'd be in there for days at a time. Teresa told her that she could only come out if she gave her the quote secret cure for the STI she didn't have. At one point, Sheila tried to tell her mum what she wanted to hear, but even that wasn't good enough for her. And so Sheila was locked back in the cupboard and she screamed and pleaded for help to be let out. But Teresa's response to that was simply to turn the TV up louder so she could ignore her. Sheila eventually stopped making any noises. Her siblings weren't able to do anything to help her for fear of being punished alongside. And Sheila soon died from a combination of things. She was without water and food for days, locked in this hot, humid, tiny space, and was extremely dehydrated and exhausted. She was just 20 years old. Teresa then had to decide what to do with Sheila's body. Her first thought was to dismember her body and get rid of her in smaller pieces, but Teresa eventually decided against this, instead deciding to put her body in a cardboard box, put her in the car, and drive her to a spot nearby where she'd dump the body. Again, she made her sons help her do this. She drove them all to a road where she previously burned Susan's body and dumped Sheila on the side of the road. In order to make it seem like an unrelated death to the death of the investigator's previous Jane Doe, Teresa just left her body there, inside of that cardboard box, rather than setting it on fire. When Sheila's body was discovered the following day, officers tried to find out who she was, but there was nothing on her that gave away who she might be, and there was no missing persons report that matched her, and so she was also listed as a Jane Doe. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you love chilling mysteries, unsolved cases, and a touch of mom-style humor, Moms and Mysteries is the podcast you've been searching for. Hey guys, I'm Mandy. And I'm Melissa. Join us every Tuesday for Moms and Mysteries, your gateway to gripping, well-researched true crime stories. Each week, we deep dive into a variety of mind-boggling cases as we shed light on everything from heists to whodunits. We're your go-to podcast for mysteries with a motherly touch. Subscribe now to Moms and Mysteries wherever you get your podcast. By this point, Teresa was still worried about Sheila and Susan's bodies somehow being connected and being found out. She decided the only thing to do was to get the three boys and Terry to help her set the house on fire and destroy any evidence of what she'd done to Sheila. Terry, the youngest child, was 15 years old by this point, and that's when she decided she needed to escape. She knew that if she stayed, she'd be next. She was already being tortured. She'd been left inside of a freezer for hours. And so she needed to leave, no matter what that meant. She left home and started working on the streets where she got in with a dangerous crowd. She ended up getting addicted to drugs and being homeless on and off. Terry, however, was determined to get justice for her sisters and see her mum behind bars. But... After she'd gone to see a lawyer and they said they couldn't help, possibly through not believing her or not thinking they'd have enough evidence, Terry left and questioned what to do next. 
She decided that in order to eventually get justice for her sisters, she needed to rebuild her life. She got married years later, but in a cycle of violence breeding violence, she was abusive towards her own husband. She was also beaten so badly by her mother that the damage to her stomach from being punched meant that she was infertile. She could never have children. One time, Terry was in with officers on yet another domestic violence charge when she started to tell one of them about her experiences as a child and of the murders of both Sheila and Susan. The details that Terry had given to the officer was passed on to another department so they could look into the claims and validate their authenticity. But when they looked into it further and got in contact with the local police forces in those areas, they didn't come across anything that matched with what Terry had told them and so they decided to dismiss Terry's claim. Around three years later, on the 27th of October 1993, when Terry was 23 years old, she made a call to the police department to try again to get justice for her sisters. This time, the officer who dealt with Terry's call was able to identify an unsolved case that matched what Terry had said. The reason they hadn't been able to find it three years earlier was because the officer who had chased it up had accidentally inquired at the wrong county police department. They were looking in the wrong area, so they were never going to find what they were looking for. For the few years between Terry last seeing her mum and her calling into the police station to report the horrors, Teresa had left her house and then she'd moved about a bit. She kept moving about because she was constantly worried that she was going to get caught for her horrific crimes. She ended up ditching her two remaining sons, Robert and Billy Bob, and she moved away from the area. She ended up settling alone in Utah, where she began caring for an elderly woman. By all accounts, she was a completely different person while she was in Utah. It was later reported that she was kind and caring and she seemed warm and genuinely considerate of other people that she surrounded herself with, a stark contrast to the last 30 years of raising her children. Meanwhile, as the investigation was amping up, a warrant was issued for Teresa's arrest, but no one knew where she was. It took some time as she'd moved about so frequently, but they did eventually track her down and arrested her. She, of course, denied all wrongdoing and pleaded not guilty. But what Teresa didn't know was that as part of the investigation, the investigating team had tracked down her two youngest sons, Robert and Billy Bob. Robert wasn't hard to find because he was already in prison for a murder that happened in a bar a few years earlier. He'd been convicted of murder and received a 16-year sentence after he'd walked into a bar with the intention of robbing it and ended up shooting and killing the bartender. Billy Bob, however, had made quite the life for himself. Once he'd left the House of Horrors, he'd gotten a girlfriend, held down a steady job, and by all accounts was living quite a nice life. But when the police questioned him, he denied knowing anything about the murders. However, he did corroborate the abuse that had happened in the home. But he then went on to blame Sheila and Susan for their own disappearances, saying that they'd been doing sex work and had led risky lifestyles. Billy Bob and Robert were also charged as accomplices to the murders, but they both said they'd been forced to comply with their mum's requests. If they didn't, they'd be killed too, and that they genuinely believed both their sisters were possessed by the devil and that there was no other choice but to eliminate them. Both men took a deal and agreed to testify against Teresa at trial. As part of that deal, Billy Bob was given probation 
and Robert was given three years, which he served alongside his murder sentence for the bar robbery, so it didn't add any actual time onto his sentence. On hearing that both her sons were planning to testify against her, and that Terry would be doing the same, Teresa decided not to risk potentially getting given the death penalty, and instead took a plea deal where she was sentenced to life in prison. Even though she took that deal, she still to this day denies any wrongdoing. In 2011, Terry died aged 41 from heart failure. Her obituary says that she leaves behind a loving companion, Raymond, and a brother, Robert. It seems that she may have found a way to have Robert back in her life, but it doesn't say anything about Billy Bob. It was reported that when Billy Bob was initially arrested for being an accomplice to murder, he falsely claimed that Terry was in the car with them, and she should be facing the same consequences as him, so perhaps they never made up after that. As for Teresa, she will live out the rest of her life in prison, unless she gets parole. I've seen it reported in different places as to what that year could be, but it's already been denied once, and the next available parole date for her appears to be as early as next year, in 2024. Thank you for listening to this episode of Red Rum. This was a listener case suggestion, so this got recommended on YouTube for me to cover by username Sweet Petunia. so thank you for that recommendation. If you have a case that you would like me to cover, whack it down below if you're on YouTube or uh, you can email me or you can use one of our social medias, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter to uh, recommend a case you want me to cover and I will add it to the list. And I will see you next week for another episode of Red Room. Bye. Hello, I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. And we're the hosts of Seeing Red. We deliver intriguing, terrifying and dumbfounding true crime stories each and every week. With a focus on cases from the UK, we do occasionally venture overseas. We've covered everything from the mysterious death of professional footballer Emiliano Sala to the attempted murder of Victoria Sillias, a woman who fell from the sky and lived to tell the tale. Binge our bulging back catalogue and join us every Wednesday for a new episode of Seeing Red.